Welcome to It's Not a Crisis. I am your host, Doran Wallach. I'm an entrepreneur, a mother of two, a wife, and a 40-something trying to figure out what is happening in this decade. Why is no one talking about it? I created this podcast to help women in their late 30s and 40s to figure out what is going on in our mind, body, soul, and life. We may laugh, we may cry, we may get frustrated, but most importantly, my goal is to make this next chapter of life positive. I'm also full of my own questions and I'm here to go on this journey with you. So let's do it together. Today's topic is something I felt was very relevant to all of us at this stage of life and something I was interested in exploring after I had Jen Nguyen on the show from The Pledgeettes, and we were talking about finances in our 40s. Now, finances will come up for the rest of our lives. It has it, It's always going to be something that causes stress, no matter how much money you have. And I feel that it's relevant for us to start talking about it more because I think in many different instances, money not only affects our mental health, but our relationships and relationships with our extended family, our immediate family, et cetera. So when I was interviewing Jen, at some point during the interview, she mentioned a financial therapist. And I was like, what? There is such thing? Is such a thing? I was kind of blown away. I had no idea it existed. And I thought it was brilliant. Brilliant because much like you, I'm sure you've had arguments with your spouse or partner. Maybe there are financial conversations you've had with your parents, whether it's about their own finances or it's about their future or your future, as well as even with friends and 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 finding our way as women in our 40s or in late 30s. And trying to understand kind of what we're doing with our finances. And that alone can just add a lot of stress. So today, I am so excited to welcome Wendy Wright, who is a financial therapist, a psychotherapist, and a consultant based in Denver, Colorado. Wendy offers financial counseling and helps you name the blocks that get in the way of your best financial life. In her early career, she was a mortgage loan officer and then later became a licensed marriage and family therapist. Before I continue, I'm sure she did a lot of therapy before when she was a mortgage loan officer. Um, I know that I was in social work and interior design and wish I had gotten the social work background before the interior design career. It's the blend of the therapeutic and the financial that can help you find more clarity and freedom in your relationship with money, spending, saving, and debting. Wendy has over 20 years of experience in counseling those with eating disorders, disordered eating, and those who love them. She is a certified eating disorder specialist, CEDS supervisor, and a certified intuitive eating counselor. She can help you decode the underlying meanings and functions of food, body, and exercise thoughts. She applies the same blend of curiosity and support around your money life as she does around your food story to implement change. She also offers a webinar, The Intersection of Money and Milkshakes, love that name, that talks more of this powerful connection. Wendy has been featured on ED, 
M Matters, <laughs> ED Matters <laughs> podcast. Yes. So there's, there's, it was capitalized, so that was confusing, in March 2019 and published The Elephant Journal in November 2018. When she is not helping others find freedom in their relationships with finances and food, she is likely on her yoga mat, the ski slope, or a hiking trail. Welcome, Wendy. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. <laughs> so exciting to be here. I love sharing just this new idea of financial therapy with people. Sorry if I botched any of that. I, you know, that was no. uh, some <laughs> I had a multi-layered uh, experience pass. So it's hard to put. You it all really in a do. Of it's so yeah. it's so fascinating. I think obviously my first question for you is how did you get into financial therapy, and then mm-hmm. I'd like you to explain what on earth financial therapy is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's um, like you were saying, too, about being therapeutic as a mortgage loan officer. I think that was part of the beginning of the seed of finding a path to financial therapy before it even existed. I knew that I was sitting with individuals and couples and they were telling all their really, you know, all their stuff. They're giving me all their numbers. Then as an eating disorder specialist, I think that set me up to begin to look at and notice my eating disorder clients were doing this very strange, yet it made total sense kind of thing with behaviors as they stopped using food behaviors to manage their emotions. They shifted often into a money behavior. So I often classify it as a difference between highly rigid behaviors or highly chaotic behaviors. And if they had a highly rigid relationship with food, body, or exercise, they tended to also have a highly rigid relationship with money in some way, shape, or form. So I began to ask questions. I began to ask them, like, what is going on when you do this? And when you're doing this shopping or this kind of saving, or maybe even more money hoarding, when they're doing that, and they were using the same language that they were using for their eating disorder behaviors, such as, this is oversimplification, but I want to buy this shirt so that people will think I'm pretty or accept me and I won't feel rejected. I won't feel as fat, like whatever it was, it was very similar to the same reasons they were using their eating disorder. So I began to notice this and was like, oh, I think there's a thing with this. This is a thing. And I began looking around and talking to, I couldn't find any other therapists that were talking about money until I found Barry Tesler, who wrote The Art of Money, which is the place I tell everybody to start. She was one of the first people to coin the phrase financial therapist. When I found it and started diving into it, I fell in love with it. The work I do now is totally financial therapy at this point, although I do work with some clients who are working on that intersection of money and food and seeing those parallel behaviors. And I love it. It's life changing. That's really fascinating. And and, and I, I want to go into more about how it's life changing. Mm-hmm. But can you first explain to everybody? including me, because I'm clueless, what is financial therapy exactly? Well, I like to think of it as looking at like imagining this place where you can talk about everything to do with your money life without any judgment and without anyone trying to sell you something. And so it is therapeutic. I work in therapy sessions, which are, you know, that hour session week to week looking at this stuff. And we talk about money and we talk about the emotions that come up. And we find patterns and themes and help people shift to really communicating better with themselves about money. Uh, it's interesting what you said, too, about money being something that we, we can't get away from. And, and it's often said that money is one of the longest relationships we have in our life, which is the absolute truth. 
And that's why it's really helpful to look at it therapeutically and explore what's going on in the, you know, what gets in the way of really feeling satisfied in your financial life. You know, as somebody with um, a little bit of a psychology background, I'm always fascinated by things like this because our actions stem from somewhere. And uh, a lot of people aren't that in tune to where they come from and and don't want to put the time and the work in. But, you know, this podcast is all about putting the work in now so that we can live, you know, our future lives in a positive way. So I think this is just one more thing that needs work. And um, I so appreciate what you're saying. What, what are the most common issues that come up for clients that you work with, if you were to name a few? Yeah, yeah. Underneath it all, I think one of the most common issues is shame. And for most people, shame leads to either, like I mentioned before, even with food, it can lead to either highly rigid behaviors or highly chaotic behaviors because shame is sort of like this um, monster that's waiting around the corner. You never know when it's going to pop out and get you. So you put a lot of energy into avoiding it. So one of the things that my clients will be working with is either a lot of avoidance or a lot of hypervigilance and hyper control of their numbers, neither of which create a lot of satisfaction in their life. When we look at their money stories in a kind of a simplified way, they tend to either come from a place of a lot of scarcity, or which is sort of the quote unquote, there's never enough money, or a place of what they would might call abundance, which actually can often be a pocket of avoidance, which comes from a place of kind of that quote unquote, there's always enough money. Both of these mindsets are beliefs that aren't truths. That's kind of what a mindset is, or a block is a belief that's really not a truth. And it leads to decision-making patterns. This is where the Costco story came up that you and Jen had talked about of how I kind of recognize this as a couple going through Costco and there's always enough money, quote unquote, leads the pack and throws things in the cart. Here's the kayak. Here's the grill. And then you buy an extra thing of, of cereal. Yeah. <laughs> and I always bring up this in my shows because yeah. my husband once said to me, I think I mentioned in my podcast with Jen, he's like, did we really need a second box of cereal? And I'm like, are you kidding <laughs> me? <laughs> well, yeah, it's really helpful because when the mindsets start to have an argument, that's when you feel like, what did we just argue about? If we're arguing about cereal or the kayak in the cart or whatever, that until you recognize the mindset that's really having the argument, because the mindset has fears and beliefs and wants things to go a certain way. So when you recognize that, it's a very different, if you imagine that same couple going through Costco, if before they enter the store, they put their t-shirt on that says there's never enough money and there's always enough money. They're immediately aware of the mindset. They can change the dialogue and have a different, more neutral, less reactive conversation. And that's one of the biggest goals when it comes to dealing with our financial life. The way I phrase it is we want to decrease reactivity in order to increase connection. Not all of my listeners are married. Some are divorced. Mm-hmm. Some are still single. But I am a too. lot of them. A lot, OK, so I, I have two subjects I want to touch on. I, I want to start with mm-hmm. marriage or partnership because, in my opinion, I think finances are the number one source of stress and arguments in couples, no matter how much money you have. And I think that uh, I'd love to hear just a short explanation of why that is and and what you've seen with couples that has been helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I research supports your opinion that that is one of the high, most argued about areas 
And what I will say then, often what's happening is there are undetected mindsets that are having the argument and that's what's coming up. And so when you're struggling and money has become a way to convey something and then that doesn't go well. So let's give a simple example. Maybe you decide, and this could be for, for people who are in relationship or people who are single, but let's say you decide to pay for something for somebody and you hope that by doing that, they get the message that you love and care for them. But if they don't get that message, then you might get mad because you paid for something and they didn't get the message. They didn't can say to you, oh, thanks for the love because maybe they're scared that you don't have enough money to pay for that. And so they're coming from a place of saying, oh, that probably stressed them out that they paid for that. So when when the money decision is made as a relationship message and the message is not clearly communicated, then an argument can ensue. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does make sense. The other thing that has happened to us over the years that we've had to learn is, is people asking to borrow money, which is a boundary that I've recently learned that I have to put up and my husband also. And I actually, I grew up with extraordinarily generous parents, both in the way that they give to charity or to a, a random person needing money. And uh, it took them years to learn that lesson that they can't, you know, save everybody. And, and it becomes, you know, listen, I think in friendships and, and relationships, it becomes a major source of contention if, you know, not paid back, blah, blah, blah. So, I am eliminating that from my life. <laughs> it took me this many years to learn that, but um, I think it's I think it's important. You know, look, some people are okay doing it. Some people probably shouldn't do it. So, the, you know that 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 goes into friendships and other relationships. But with couples, let me ask you a question because I bet every woman is thinking this: where Where do you begin with your spouse? I've been married for eighteen years almost, and you know we still argue about this topic, but we've never. We've had some conversations about, you know, why certain things come up for him or why certain things come up for me. And yet we're still kind of in the same circle moving around and around. I actually will say to my husband, can we afford to do this? And he'll say, if it means that it brings you peace or if it means that it brings you happiness or if it means that it, it's going to help you, then we can afford it. And that that answer actually bothers me because I'm like, well, I don't understand, you know, and 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 again, I, I you know, I think that it's a conversation that needs to be had because then you'll say, well, I kind of need my face cream, but you didn't like that. You know, that makes me happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, right. so yeah. curious how you get couples to have that conversation if they've been together for a long time, like many of my listeners are in long term relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the first things that I find really helpful that I think of, I kind of had, had this thought of three game changers that I see for people that I wanted to bring today. And the first one actually applies to this is um, starting by tracking your transactions with thoughts and feelings. I actually have a download on my website to start this, a little worksheet to start this, because going back to the question about how to know if people are asking you for money is very connected to this question of how to communicate with your partner about money is slowing the process down, naming the thoughts and feelings that are coming up. Often, for instance, and this may lead to a much more in-depth conversation, but part of what you're touching on, Doran, is that there can be codependency patterns in money, that it can feel like if someone asks for it, you have to give it to them, 
Or if someone says, I'd like to buy this for you, that you have to say yes. Like you want to look at not just the financial transaction part, but also the relationship dynamic and how your internal dialogue is around that question. So I think part of what you're noticing in this conversation that you're saying you're having with your husband is that when he says, if it makes you happy, I want to do that, or you said that much more eloquently, but essentially it seems like it leaves you with some questions and some feelings and it's helpful to name those. And often we get in touch with them the best when we pause and write them down. It helps our brains slow down because when a topic such as money decisions brings up any kind of anxiety or a desire to avoid kind of the fight or flight kind of feeling, then we often will begin to talk our way through it. And I encourage a lot of pausing and a lot of writing it down. So writing down what you're feeling in that moment mm-hmm. and and why you mm-hmm. think maybe it triggered something or... Yes. Yeah. Now, I think it's about thinking about it, you know, more deeply than we are. And it's not just... I think it's just something we think about so much in our lives. It's probably the one thing that we, we don't psychoanalyze and we should be. Right. Right. Yeah. Because there's often that feeling of you should know how to do this already. Mm-hmm. And what about with, you know, I have I have friends, I, I have listeners that are divorced and are, you know, have a lot of fear and anxiety due to never establishing a career because they were a stay-at-home mom for so many years. And now, you know, they're in a position where they're going to be responsible for supporting their life and their children. How how would you work with somebody in that position? Well, I've definitely been there. I worked part-time in therapy. And when I got divorced, I became the sole provider and had to make a lot of changes and make a lot of those decisions. And I think one of the best places to start is to get support. Another real important game changer when it comes to money is also to kind of lean into, make friends with either your anxiety or your avoidance. Sometimes when I'm working with single moms who have gone through a divorce, they haven't opened their bank account in a long time because they've been so scared of it. When we sit down and we talk about what is the fear, what is the avoidance, and begin to look at it with a lot of compassionate curiosity, it really helps. So getting support can make a big difference in that because you're having to kind of shift your whole decision-making matrix at that point of how you're going to use your time and your money and your resources. And it's scary. It makes sense that it's really scary that things are really different. And I kind of liked how you and when you and Jen were talking to you about the point you made about know, know what your accounts are So at whatever stage of marriage or partnership you're in, I think it's really empowering to know how to log into all the accounts, to know where all the accounts are, to have that information and have it handy so that if you do face a divorce, you're more prepared. You know where everything is and you know where part, you know, what the plan has been and how to shift to make that plan different. God forbid if you're widowed. I mean, at some point, yes. you know, it's, it's, a, it's not just divorce. It it's, happens. So for those of you who are listening and saying, oh, yeah, I know that. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're in the most wonderful marriage ever. I think it's a really important thing for us to know. And, and I did mention that in the other show. But I think that there are so many of us that took time off from making money. And, and, and it's scary because, you know, a lot of times it is the other spouse. Not entirely. I have many friends who continued their, their careers through their marriage. But that's, that's very scary for somebody who's all of a sudden single mm-hmm. and dealing with yeah. that. 
So when you say support, do you mean seeing somebody like you? Yeah, yeah. Or a good friend, a trusted friend, or maybe a career mentor. So if you, you know, if you're going back into whatever field, if you took a break or you went part time for a while, maybe having a career mentor, because when you're in a time of crisis, your thoughts become very tunnel vision on survival. At least that was my, you know, my experience when I was going through the divorce crisis. And so it's helpful to have some supportive outside opinions that can help you make decisions because that's where you can get really frozen. And that can be, you're right, like any crisis, it can be a crisis with a young adult child that can leave you, you know, really reeling or the loss of your partner, things like that too. So it's helpful in the times when things are calm and neutral to sit down. And that's a third game changer that I find for people too is When it comes to money, it makes a huge difference to think of living out of a plan, not just your bank balance. I find a lot of my clients live out of their bank balance and make their spending decisions. And that's when they forget things like car insurance is due, registration, car repairs, things like that. So when we have a plan in place and we do that at a time where things are neutral, then when there's a time of crisis, the plan is already there and you feel connected and it feels clear. So that can also be a really helpful game changer, too, that I help people work on. Do you suggest that these conversations happen early for for someone who's starting over and in a new relationship? Do you suggest the finance conversation happens early in the relationship? Yes. It's a different stage of life, clearly, but totally. But I think the more comfortable um, each of us are as individuals with our money, our money story and how to talk about it the more these conversations will just flow. That's what I find my clients that are, um, because I have clients that are single women that are dating and they will come into session and talk about either they're confused about how to discuss the price of, maybe they went to dinner and it was really expensive and then they're nervous about, oh, do I have to pay that much for the next dinner? And how do I bring that up? Like it comes up all the time because we interact with money every day. So it's helpful the more at ease they become with their money relationship, the easier it is to just have those small, simple conversations. And then when the relationship takes off, it's a great time to introduce money dates where it's a focused 30 to 45 minute conversation, check in about here's our money, here's our plan, how's it going? And that way that becomes just a normal part of their dialogue. That seems like a really long time for that conversation. <laughs> you can definitely start with five minutes. Yeah, I think yes. we baby, baby steps because that could end up going somewhere Absolutely. very messy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, and it's helpful to have a plan. I, I, I love that idea. And I think that I got married so young that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. I probably came into our marriage with debt. So um, I was 25 and um, on my way to graduate school. And so I think. That's really great advice if you're starting over. I think, you know, listen, I think it's not too late to do it in a relationship that you're already in as well. I think it's an uncomfortable, scary conversation at times. Mm -hmm. I think um, sometimes we don't want to know the realities of our financial situation. Most often with everybody, we have to know. and And it's important thing to understand. Yeah, yeah. But there can be a lot of avoidance, especially if you have a history of being judged for your relationship with money or a history of even financial abuse in a previous relationship. It's really helpful to work through that trauma. But getting comfortable talking about money, absolutely, Doran, can start with the babiest of baby steps, even just five minutes of the simple act of 
logging into the account, looking at the balance and with a very intentional moment of non-judgment. That's a great start. And I love the idea of looking at your childhood. I think that if I personally think about money, I think about um, sort of the way my dad handled money as a child. And my dad was always very generous, but maybe a little bit controlling at times with it. And I understand it a little bit more as a parent, but I think it definitely triggers things with my spouse that I have to learn to understand that he's not doing the same thing. It's taken me years to to really communicate that with him and for him to understand. But I definitely don't think I'm the first woman in that situation. So right. I love looking at your your past and your childhood and how your family talked about money or used money. Yeah, it really makes a difference. But I always like to explain to my clients, we're not looking for a place to hang the blame. We're looking for context. Because that was your main learning place, you know, where you grew up, the people you grew up with. I also work with clients who have inherited wealth, especially, it can be especially a struggle if they had a very difficult relationship with the people they inherited the wealth from, or if the inherited wealth came from a business which doesn't align with the person who inherited the wealth with their values. Like, Those kind of things are great to bring to financial therapy to just have a place to talk it through and find a way to create a neutral relationship with the money and then to create a relationship with the money that that does align with their values. You mentioned in a conversation with me three game changers that come up often, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think that, and we've touched on these in in various points today too, but I'll just review them in that as a place to start. I think the first game changer to me is starting with tracking your transactions with thoughts and feelings. By doing that, you begin to notice patterns and themes. Most people are not very connected to what is driving their money decisions. This helps bring that connection up and it really makes a difference. So it's kind of cool. The second one is making friends with either your avoidance or your anxiety, the thing that you fear the most when it comes to your money, to make friends with it. And the phrase that I like to say, hopefully I've already said it a few times today, is looking at it with abundant, compassionate curiosity and zero judgment. That's a game changer. It's really hard for most of my clients because they're used to judging themselves, thinking that they're quote unquote bad with money and other people are good with money. And so that's one of the places we like to start is really kind of looking at that as a mindset and that people really aren't bad or good with money. There's just things about money that you might prefer when you can move out of that mindset that you're bad with money, that it's not a character flaw. Then you begin to have hope for change and change starts happening. It's really cool. And the third one is living out of a plan instead of your bank balance, really having a mindful experience with your money, really looking at what do I want my money to look like this year, in five years, 10 years. I often call this, what story do you want your money to tell? And those three things I work with everybody on, and it really starts to help make a difference. Can you give an example? I'm sorry to go back to the second one. Sure. Can you give an example mm-hmm. of, of something that often comes up? Making friends with your avoidance or your anxiety? Yeah. Well, a lot of times it, it really lies in a belief that they're bad with money, so they avoid it or they feel highly anxious. Like even in the first 
you know, session, their hearts racing, they're scared. It's kind of like they, saying you're bad at math, which, yes, yes, yeah. which is me. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you feel like you're bad with money, then that leads to certain decisions. Like if I'm bad with money, why try? Why open my bank account? Why look at it? Why not go into debt because I'm bad with it anyway? Like there's just a lot of ways that that becomes an if-then scenario. If you look at it with abundant, compassionate curiosity and no judgment, we create neutrality around it. And you're able to say, oh, okay, I don't enjoy being in debt. It brings stress for me. I see that other people aren't in debt. And then we're able to talk about it. And we're able to talk about, in that example, transactions that are going on the credit card. We talk about what came up for them that led to putting it on the credit card, led to increasing debt versus decreasing debt. And by looking at it without judging it, they're often able to see, oh, okay, I bought that because I was feeling really depressed that day, or I was feeling really anxious, or I was scared that if I didn't have the right shirt or briefcase or whatever for that meeting, my clients wouldn't love what I was doing. Like once we dig into what's going on with the story without judging it, then they're able to see, okay, so what I'm really wanting, for instance, is acceptance or achievement. And what's another way I can do that? Then they begin to shift to other behaviors besides in that example, using their credit card to buy something. And I would imagine you've dealt with shopping addiction. Yes. Talk a little bit about what shopping addiction. I mean, and clearly we we understand the words, but w- what really is it? Because I mean, there are probably a lot of people right now questioning whether or not they have that because there's nothing more else to Absolutely. do or go. <laughs> Everyone's online. <laughs> well, I think that's a really good way of looking at it because to me, and this is an oversimplification, I recognize. So I want to acknowledge that. But one way that's really helpful to recognize how if there if it's more addictive is is there a magical thought loop such as well i'm going to buy this shirt so that that guy will like me or i'm going to buy this whatever so that if it leads to some sort of magical outcome and you feel so compelled that you can't not do it because you believe the magical outcome sometimes that's a way to notice if it's feeling addictive and so often again i start with this very thing we start journaling about the transaction before it's even made between putting it in the cart and clicking buy now. I'll have them pause and write like a paragraph about what are their thoughts and feelings about that particular item in their cart. And that begins to really open things up and they begin to see, okay, here's what I'm trying to do with this. Because usually it happens very impulsively with a sense of maybe even urgency or a sense of desperation when they notice themselves buying these things, or if there's some codependency showing up, pausing and looking at if everything they buy is for someone else, then maybe they're feeling really unsettled in their relationships and feel like the only way they can have someone love them is if they give them things. These are things that we uncover by pausing, looking at it, and creating a neutral space to explore what's coming up for them. And then the behavior starts to change. It's very hard today with Amazon and Apple Pay. Because it's so easy to, you know, I mean, Amazon, I don't think I have a bad relationship with shopping, but I do find Mm -hmm. myself throwing something in my cart. My new thing is I throw things in my cart and I don't check out for like a few days. So I can go back in and say, do I really need that? Or am I, you know, and then sometimes I'm a little lazy and I'll throw something in my cart that I may already have, but I didn't go look for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so I think I <laughs> I I, I kind of just started that behavior with myself and I think it's really helpful because I you know, your stuff and, and also by the way, it's better to put your Amazon stuff 
in one order. Hopefully they, they work on their box situation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <So true. laughs> I hate when I get 40 boxes. I know, but it's super helpful to build that pause in. And so if, if by detaching, that's not a good word for it, but uh, making it less, less quick and easy to have your credit card there to, or your debit card to make the purchase, make a, you want to kind of think of building in speed bumps. And so, yeah, like taking a day or two, once you put something in your cart, it can be really helpful or taking that moment to journal about what it is about that product, that item that makes you want to buy it that day. Sometimes it's totally fine. Like you're out of toilet paper, so you need more toilet paper. That's fine. If it's neutral, it's it's just that habit of building in that mindful pause. And sometimes it can really show maybe, a, for instance, a lot of my clients that I'm working with, their relationship to food and money, because when we buy food, these collide hugely. But if they find themselves judging themselves for having food delivered or things like that too, then we pause and we look at what's coming up in those moments because perhaps they're feeling really depleted on nurture and having someone else make a meal for them feels nurturing. Then we don't want to judge it. We want to look at it. Then we want to look at what are other ways to increase the nurture in their life, for instance. So I find that pause and that journaling about it with looking at the thoughts and feelings to be really powerful. That's really interesting. And I think a lot of women listening to this are never going to have never thought of actually doing that. I think it could eliminate some conversations. I think couples, again, what I just mentioned, I think it's a matter of of need versus want. And sometimes you're in the position where, you know, you just can't do something at a certain time. And even both sides of the relationship do it. We were in a situation where my husband was like, let's let's cut back on spending. And then we went to this art show called the Affordable Art Show. And we saw a piece of artwork that wasn't crazy expensive at all, but certainly not a necessity. And he was like, oh, I love this. Or let's get it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, this is not something we need right now. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it was something that, you know, he really wanted to have in the house, which is so interesting and not like him, but confusing because here I was saying, you know, we don't we don't need this. This is something that we could wait on. You know, we could get something down the line. And I think that conversation is important. I think it's the pause is important. Everyone can be impulsive these days with spending. Yeah. And I think that's part of where it's really helpful to become friends with your impulsivity. Like, look at what it is that feels, why does it feel so important to buy that thing at that moment? It can be lots of different reasons. And that's why it's really helpful to, to have that mindful pause. Because for instance, perhaps, and I'm just making this up basically, you know, for your husband, because I don't know him, but you know, say maybe he was feeling really deprived about something and he felt like he needed to make a statement to himself that he had the resources to make this purchase this day. Well, it'd be really important for you as a partner to know that that was what was going on for him, where it's not about the art. That's one thing that's so important to recognize. Most money conflicts are not about money. There's a little trick that I will give your, you and your audience too, is when you feel like it's about money, take the word money out or whatever money word you're using. So if it's like, oh, all he cares about is the money, take the word money out and see what else comes up without using a money word. Because usually all you're caring about is being seen, being heard, being cared for. That's when the really, the power starts by noticing what's coming up because it's not usually about money. And so by having the conversation of what is it you're longing for, 
from this piece of art, then you get to, like I said before, decrease reactivity, increase connection. You know more about your partner and your relationship. And it's really cool. This has been extremely helpful, Wendy. And I thank you so much. I, I hope this helped my listeners to look at finances in a more psychological way and know that there is such thing as a financial therapist if you do need to look at your finances in a different way. And um, I, I just love that you're doing this. Yes, I'm, I love what I do. It's very exciting. That's great. And tell everyone where they can find you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my website is pretty easy. It's wendywrightcounseling.com. And from that, you can dive right in with the freebie. The freebie will take you to some other workbooks, journaling exercises, an opportunity. I have one called Five Days for Finding Financial Clarity. And then I will also be having one later this year on the intersection of money and milkshakes, which is going to be more of a experiential of really journaling through your own relationship with food and money, if you notice a parallel there. So signing up on my email list, follow me on social media, all of those ways are great ways to get support. And do you work with couples? I do. I work with individuals or couples. It's primarily telehealth, which will probably stay that way because the traffic, most most of my Denver clients are even like, I don't want to deal with the traffic. They enjoy the telehealth experience. I know. So I think really so many great. people do. <laughs> yeah. And I work with clients across the nation and in other countries. So it's really helpful because there's not a lot of people who do what I do. I think having the balance of somebody who's going to help you get your finances in order, which is a scary thing in itself, as well as looking at the other components of your mind and how it affects you is so important. So thank you again for coming on the show. And I hope that if anybody has any questions, could they reach out to you directly after the show? Absolutely. It's Wendy at WendyWrightCounseling.com. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to give yourself permission and know that you are not alone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Reviews are always appreciated. And you can reach me by email at it's not a crisis at Gmail, Instagram, it's not a crisis podcast, and please join our Facebook group as well. Until next time, just remember, it's not a crisis.